Uh, The reading is Galatians 5, verses 1 to 12. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await, through the Spirit, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. It's my first time up here, uh, I must say. I'm very excited. There's a kitchen timer. So, we're counting. Um, Let us pray, and then uh, we will begin. Father God, we long that we would be a people who live in the freedom that you have won for us. Father, we long that we would be a people who, who know and love the Lord Jesus aright and, and are so enabled to live our lives um, as you have called us to and not confused by falsehood and trickery. We pray, therefore, Father, that you would speak to us now, that you would help us to know and to love your Son as you have revealed yourself in these words. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to risk just a moment uh, starting by saying something I've not written down. But I, I noted as, we, were, uh, as we, we finished the reading that it was quite hard, I think, for us all to say, thanks be to God, as we heard the end of that reading. Um, I have some things to say about that at the end of the, uh, or towards the end of the sermon. Um, but if, if you're wondering whether it's worth listening at all um, for the next few minutes, um, let me encourage you. I was struck as, as we were just singing that last hymn, um, the words in, in one of the Gospels where, where Jesus, talking about prayer, says, you who know how to give good gifts to your father, uh, to your sons, even though you're evil, um, don't you see that obviously God knows how to give far greater gifts? Uh, forgive my clumsiness in, in that, that recitation, but that's from memory. Um, I think as we hear verse 12, be comforted that we're hearing the words of a, a brother, indeed an apostle, who loves us dearly, who loves the Lord dearly, 
and who wants us to understand the seriousness of the subject matter. So we have two options this morning, either to be turned off by verse 12 and to to close our ears because the language is harsh and startling, or to trust that Paul is a faithful authority, a godly Christian, and so to be moved to his level of concern about the subject matter. I'm not asking you to be convinced that you should be that concerned immediately. I'm, I'm going to convince you in the next few minutes, hopefully. But, but please listen. <laughs> um, on to what I've prepared. I wonder how many of us come here this morning feeling guilt-ridden, ashamed, and tired of our fight with sin. Perhaps you're embarrassed that you couldn't find room for a quiet time this week. Or you're seeing more and more of your sinfulness recently and feel trapped by the evil and brokenness within your own heart. And for the non-Christian, the visitor, perhaps you're sat here thinking, well, the gospel is all about guilting us into good behaviour. Well, these verses hold out a sweet hope for us. They show us that we belong to God because of what he has done, not because of what we have done or indeed can do. These verses also give us the power to fight our sin, free from concerns about belonging and deservedness. And Paul does so in a most surprising way. He does so by shocking us into the realisation that hopelessness of anything other than humble dependence on the grace of God in the crucified Christ. So we start at verses 2 and 3. Paul wants us to know, first, that if we seek righteousness by our own efforts, we are signing up to obey the whole law. Verses 2 and 3. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're obliged to keep the whole of God's law. Those who felt circumcision was necessary saw their belonging to God as depending on their own moral perfection, their own obedience to God's law. And so they sought to be morally perfect by obeying. But you can't be a little perfect. Those who were seeking to be perfect by obedience, their scope was too narrow. Paul says, it's not enough to be circumcised. There's not just one law. There's a whole law. And so if you're heading into the next week thinking, I'm going to have a successful quiet time every day, and that'll make me good with God. Or or if you're committing to keeping the whole of God's law, um, sorry, if you're going going into next week thinking you're going to have a successful quiet uh, quiet time each day, and that'll make you good with God, you've got to commit as well to keeping everything else that is contained within the law. Or or if you're reflecting on decades of revealed evil in your heart and you're winding up even now to defeat it so you can look Jesus in the eye and know you deserve to be with him. Well, don't forget everything comprised in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Don't forget to love God and to love those around you perfectly all of the time. 
in every possible way. I don't know about you, that makes the job seem pretty impossible. Um, And that's the point. We were already told in chapter 3, the law was never designed to save us. And don't we know that this, this striving, this trying to be morally perfect is, is fruitless? When, when we look inside, we, 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 don't we find that failure is everywhere? It, it mars every part of our hearts, every part of what we do. Pride creeps in with that loving act. Oh, I did good there. I'm a good person. Or anger and hate flash before we have a chance to control ourselves. I'm embarrassed to admit that I get foolishly angry when my computer, keyboard or mouse or other bit of technology stops working the way I expect it to. As I was writing last night, my Bluetooth trackpad was disconnecting uh, intermittently every few minutes and I was very annoyed. Right in that moment of, of trying to be godly, trying to be faithful. Even our best efforts are stained with sinfulness. And so if, if that is the reality and we go into life with the goal of being morally perfect, we either end up frozen in guilt, torturing ourselves for our sinfulness, or we downplay the seriousness of sin. We either begin interrogating ourselves, a Christian would never let themselves do that. You mustn't be saved. Or else we make excuses. Well, everyone gets angry with bad drivers. This world is just too full of sexual temptation to avoid it. Or the best, it's just who I am, get used to it. Paul tells us that we will die the way that we live. We can, own, we can either live by our merits or by Jesus's. We, we can't live by both. Verse 4, if we seek to be justified by the law, we are severed from Christ. We have fallen from grace. Because if we choose to live by our own merits, if we choose to try and ride this gap between um, fruitless obedience that is stained and, and, and marred with sin or redefining what sin even is. We reject the free gift, the, the offer of the freedom in Christ that, that is presented to us on the cross. You see, I think the issue with legalism, that is seeking to earn salvation by being good ourselves, To get in right with God by our own efforts. The issue with that is that it focuses on our felt sense of being morally perfect. If I feel morally right by following rules and regulations like circumcision, I can be sure I'm saved. And I can be confident I deserve it. I hope... As, as you're hearing that, you can see just how easy it is for the genuinely good things, good ways for us to be living as Christians, can slip into this way of thinking. So easily we can go from being here to worship and praise the Lord and to hear him speaking to us, 
into ticking a box. Into, I feel morally righteous because I'm here. And so I've earned an audience with the Lord on the last day. And so if we want to live by our works, then we reject the gift of Christ. We reject grace. And we will die in that marred, messy brokenness that still indwells each of our hearts in various ways now. But for Paul, the focus is not on how perfect we feel, but rather our love for Jesus, which assures us of our salvation and gives us hope for the perfection we will receive. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. That is, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts a trust of Jesus which overflows in love for him. The Holy Spirit gives us a confidence that Jesus' death in our place saves us. And it gives us a supernatural love for him. As we see and delight in Jesus' character, his, his personality, his grace, the way he treats the vulnerable, the way he loves the maligned, the wisdom and awesome intelligence that he displays in the Gospels. As we delight in who Jesus is, we develop a desire, a longing to be holy as he is holy. Like a child longing for Christmas Day. And we look forward to the day when he calls us out of Jerusalem as his pristine bride. No longer marred by sin and wickedness. But presented spotless for the lamb who was slain. That spirit wrought love inclines us to desire what Jesus desires. Those being his perfection, his goodness. The way he loves. And we trust that he will give us these things in some measure during our lifetimes. But fully and certainly in the new creation. And so we don't strive for a fleeting sense of flawed moral perfection now. We long for the moral perfection, the righteousness that we will be given in the new creation. We await the gift of perfection from the one who did the work to qualify us for the gift in the first place. See, on the cross, Jesus invites us into his family by trusting that he has done everything necessary to earn us a place there. And as a member of the family, he will give us a share in the heirloom of righteousness. Give us a share in that moral perfection. This is why Paul can say to those who seek assurance through their own works that they fall away from grace. You see, they reject the gift, 
They reject the giver. And thereby they reject the righteousness, the inheritance that they will gain. When we seek to live by the the moral uh, goodness that we, we can we can seek to uh, live in ourselves, we we give up. Oh, I take that back. The Christian humbly depends instead on Christ's saving work, and is enabled by His Spirit to long for the perfection to come. So our day-to-day experience isn't being racked with guilt for failing to meet the moral standard. Yes, it, it is lament that, that we are not as good as we might be. But it is lament that leads us in prayerful dependence on the one who has already saved us and has promised us that he will make us perfect on the last day. That keeps us going. That keeps us enduring. You see, it is this hope that enables us to stand firm in our freedom, as Paul calls us to in verse 1. You see, at the beginning he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We can stand confident that everything that has ever needed to be done to win us entry into God's kingdom has indeed been done for us. We can stand firm that when we fall into sin in the next hours, days, weeks, and so on, because our sin does not determine whether we belong to Jesus. What determines our belonging is that spirit-wrought trust of him which overflows in love for him. When you are feeling guilty and wondering what what God is doing and, and whether you are whether you are His, whether you're even saved, as you picture your Savior in your place on your cross, ask yourself: Are you moved in love and trust that He has done everything necessary to bring you into His loving embrace on that last day? That is the work of the Spirit. That is what wins you inheritance. That inheritance of righteousness with him. And so if you're embarrassed by the way your week has gone, and you're racked with guilt at the systemic sin in your life, wondering what the next week holds, know that your obedience does not determine your belonging. You are not a Christian because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you and who he's making you into and who he will make you into on the last day. We can also stand firm as Jesus' spirit gives us the power to seek to obey him, not out of duty to earn forgiveness, but out of the love for the one who has forgiven. Let me say that again. We can stand firm as well because Jesus' spirit gives us the power to seek to obey him, not out of a duty to earn forgiveness, 
but out of love for Jesus who has forgiven. Out of a love for him and for the things that he loves. It is only with that spirit-given love for Jesus and his kingdom that we will have any ability to fight our sin now. It is only by God's spirit giving us a divine love for hearing from our heavenly father that we will be drawn into deeper devotion with him. It is only by God's spirit giving us a divine love for our brother, our sister, our enemy, that we will begin to make inroads against our anger. At the heart of all of our sin problems are not a matter of how much we force ourselves to get there, but how disordered our loves are, what we love instead of loving the right things. And it is that spirit power that will enable us to love the right things in the right way. If you're visiting and, and you really don't know whether Jesus is good news for you, Please know that, sorry I'm trying to read what I've handwritten, Um, terrible handwriting, absolutely, it's unprofessional, I'm sorry. Um, There we go. Um, If you're visiting and and you really don't know whether this Jesus thing is for you, know that his, his gospel is not about guilting you into being good enough To be welcome. It's not that at all. It's the offer of relationship with your creator. Which frees you to be all you truly can be. If you'd like to know more, do please chat to myself or to Mike or anybody else um, over coffee later. Um, We would love love to talk to you about that. Briefly, a, a word on the uh, back half of the passage, verses 7 through 12. Um, and this is the bit I promised you earlier. Um, we do well to consider Paul's word for false teachers. Paul wants us to know that this error is not insignificant. It is a deeply serious matter to be turned from gospel confidence. I hope you feel that as we, as we think about the things that we, and we reflect on the things we've just been talking about. To be removed from the free gift of welcome in the cross. To, to, have the, to be deprived of the power of spirit-wrought love that saves and sanctifies and that keeps us until the last day. That is awfully serious. In verse 8, Paul calls it a godless gospel. These are no small things, especially as in verse 9, a little bit of false teaching goes a long way. We only need to look, we don't need to look too far to know that to be true. And false teaching and the devastating impacts of it can be seen throughout church history. Leading people to live that life that only leads to death. In verse 11, Paul suggests that false teaching, at least in his case, but but I wonder whether always, is inconsistent. It says one thing and does another. 
Just look at how the legalists treated Paul. They seem to commend their warped gospel as Paul's to their hearers. Paul is having to deny that he, he preaches uh, circumcision. But then they persecute him. So they're coming up, they come up and they say, oh yes, uh, you, should, you should follow Paul's teaching. He, he suggests that every one of us needs to be circumcised today and then we can certainly be called Christians. Which is especially important because I believe all of us here, most of us are probably Gentiles. Um, oh, but by the way, Paul's a bad guy. So don't listen to anything he says. Just listen to me telling you what I say he says. It's terribly inconsistent. How kind you would be to myself and to John and Mike and indeed anyone who seeks to teach you um, to point out inconsistency which suggests false teaching. This is important because to replace the gospel of dependence on grace with anything else, be it dependence on works or perhaps in our day the insignificance of sin earns nothing but judgment from God and condemnation from the apostles for the sake of God's people. That's what's going on in verse 12 there. Calvin describes it as the, the heart of the true pastor for his people. So concerned that the flock not be lost. That he, he would wish the, uh, the false teachers violently removed from, from their, their positions of authority and power. You see, James was right when he warned that not all should be teachers. Teachers should be judged seriously for how we teach and how we lead God's people in the right direction or astray. But I want us to finish with a sight of the confidence that Paul has for us this morning. Just hear the beginning of verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. See, as Paul finishes um, writing the, uh, this conclusion, this uh, ending to the bulk of his argument in Galatians, um, that a, a gospel of works is no gospel at all, he's not worried that the Galatians and, and we, by extension, are left alone to human persuasion, a battle of wits or um, biblical interpretation or political strategizing. He is confident that our problem is a spiritual one and one that God is at work in the hearts of his people to fix. Paul, is, Paul has confidence in the Lord that those that he has saved will not continue to be confused. Paul knows the struggle of holiness, the desire to feel righteous as the legalist strives. You might remember Romans 7 and 8. Paul describes his own experience with a battle for Christian holiness. He says, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul says he delights in God's law in his heart, but his body desires to do evil. But he goes on to say that our sin suffering, that struggle with being confronted with just how broken and incapable we are of being good enough. He says that that suffering will be outweighed by the glory we will experience on the last day. 
He says, we'll be helped to persevere and pray by the Spirit, knowing that God works all salvation history for the good of those he has loved since before creation. Certain that the predestined are certainly called, justified, and ultimately given that glorified resurrection body. So what Paul doesn't want you going out of here thinking is, right, I have to psych myself up to, to know that this is, this is how things are going to work. He's saying, when we are gripped by this definition of the gospel, as the loving work of Christ to win us for himself, that he might make us righteous by his spirit and not by our efforts, we will not long be lost to the deceptions of the devil and false teachers. Now don't mishear me, I'm I'm not saying that the Christian life therefore looks like finding the the comfiest lazy boy and just riding it out until the new creation. Um, We're going to hear next week, I think, from John about the obedience that comes from faith, that loving Christ and the things of Christ in the way Christ loves them, which leads to action. But what Paul is telling us here is that that action is, is undergirded, is the foundation of it, the fuel of it, if you will, is the spirit working in us. Paul so often speaks of working as hard as he can, but immediately undercuts any sense that his effort should be commended by saying, but it was not me, but God working in me. It was not me, but the spirit at work. We will hear more of that balance Tomorrow, But the primary focus today is that we don't go out into the week believing that our, our, our confidence, our hope lies in what we do, but rather that our confidence and our hope lies in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So let's pray that God would indeed continue to transform our hearts and lives. Father, we thank you that though we did not deserve it, you pulled us out of that miry pit. Though we could do nothing, you took the steps to bring us to yourself. And that though we can contribute nothing to our salvation, everything we need has been given to us through the Son. Father, we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts, that we would love you and love the things that you have for us, the things you would have us do. Father, we long to be those who, who love aright. Please keep us from this temptation to, to feel morally right with you by our own efforts, but fill us with the hope of the promise of the gospel, that whether for the first time or the millionth, we might go out from here today living in the wonderful freedom that you have won for us by your spirit and for your glory. Amen.